Extended Clip, episode 49. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum, the tramp. <laughs> I'm JT White. Uh, and today's double feature is uh, Monsieur Verdoux, the Charlie Chaplin film from 1947, and Freddy Got Fingered, the 2001 Tom Green film. Malcolm, you picked out this double feature for us. Why don't you tell us a little about your selection? So with these two movies, you got two uh, comedian figures at kind of like at big points in their career. This is Freddie Got Fingered is probably at the height of Tom Green's influence. And uh, Monsieur Verdoux comes after, you know, many years of classic films by Chaplin. You know, he has the public's trust to a certain extent. And they decide to make these kind of difficult and unpleasant films, you know, that are comedy films. But, uh, you know, with Verdoux, you know, has an underlying message, you know, anti-capitalist, you know, how it's turning us all into monsters. And with Freddy Got Fingered, you know, there might not be a huge coherent message, but it's, a, it's just kind of a lash out against the monoculture, right? I mean, it's just one of the great achievements of this movie is that it was, you know, widely distributed. So we have, we have two comedians disrupting the culture and getting backlash for it. I mean, both... Uh, both faced heavy criticism for these movies. Tom Green a little bit more so, just because, you know, he's not Charlie Chaplin in the 1940s. But yeah, the, the public reacted kind of negatively to these films, and now they kind of have a positive reputation now. Even Freddie Got Fingered. I, I never see anyone shitting on that movie, this movie anymore. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, I think that's it. I think uh, that's all I have. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a classic example of uh, films that bozo critics were wrong about. Uh, I'm sure you could find any number of critics writing about how Charlie Chaplin isn't funny anymore with uh, Monsieur Verdoux. And you can also find Roger Ebert's writing on Freddy Got Fingered, where he gives it one of his cruelest reviews of all time. And I don't know. Um, with both of these films, you just kind of have to look back and think, oh, yeah, general audiences have been wrong for so long. <laughs> and uh, the great the great works of cinema... Uh, almost never are recognized as such immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it took it time, you know, made these movies great a little bit. Because, you know, maybe us average jacks in 1947 and, you know, maybe if we're film snobs back in 2000, right, we're a Tom Green of Road Trip? You know, I think not. You know, what is this? <laughs> what is this uh, pablum? But, uh, you know, now, now you know, we, we had the blessing of the internet and now we know better. When you think about the term cinema verite, that's not like really what you think of uh, Chaplin, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in terms of its literal meaning of direct cinema, uh, I don't think there's ever a more direct filmmaker, uh, or I don't think there's ever been a more direct filmmaker. Many have noted, uh, you know, his uh, knowledge of, you know, an actor's proximity to the camera, and usually that actor is himself. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, Chaplin is well-praised, you know, probably maybe the most famous silent filmmaker. Um, that sounds right. But, um, I mean, yeah, his, his the way how, like, you know, he's really one of one. This is, you know, pure auteur theory. It's His movies are based completely on him, you know, directing, writing, and acting. You know, the way the camera's motivated is just through Chaplin's movements. It's a... Uh, it's it's he's a tour de force so this film is uh definitely a bit different than the other ones he's not playing the tramp um <laughs> although his character is trampish at times 
you know, he he was slowly drifting away with the features that led up to this uh, from his traditional style. You know, City Lights is kind of his final bow of the silent tramp movies. Uh, and it's just such an overwhelming ending to that story, uh, you know. And then modern times, he's kind of floating away from that and going back uh, to a little bit of social realism uh, that you may have seen in some of his earlier shorts. And then uh, taking it a step further with The Great Dictator, he's not only establishing uh, himself as a sound filmmaker, he is very directly uh, making films that are social commentary even more so than modern times. Now here, he's going back even further to these kind of this kind of a Baroque narrative, if you will, and using that to tell a very socially conscious story of its time. Uh, it's a more uh, impactful World War II movie than The Great Dictator was for me in the sense that it's able to achieve such dramatic and comedic and formal heights uh, in its own right as like a surface level narrative before you even apply it to its real world analog. And then once you do, and once the film kind of forces you to, when it introduces the real world footage towards the end, uh, then the weight of this film as a masterpiece fully starts to come crashing down on the viewer. Yeah. I like this film as like a companion to like black book with our, like a little bit of uh, a slice of world war two in these two episodes. And I think they both do a fantastic job of being like, I mean, there's a lot of, like, fucking around in both of them, which is nice. And Chaplin here, as Verdue, is, like, the ultimate fuck boy and is fantastic. But, I mean, I think both films, like, manage to, like, skate a line of, like, being really funny, but also taking a very gray, nuanced look in sort of the moral depravity that emerged from World War II. And that led up to it, too. Yeah, for sure. Once this film kind of introduces that metaphor, uh, you know, more directly towards the end, you realize that, you know, the descent of Europe into crisis leading up to World War II is represented by the descent of Verdu's uh, brain and morality after losing his banking job. Mm -hmm. So to get into what this film is, uh, we open on a uh, tracking shot moving through a cemetery where Chaplin, in voiceover, introduces the film. Good evening. As you see, my real name is Henri Verdoux, and for 30 years, I was an honest bank clerk until the Depression of 1930, in which year I found myself unemployed. It was then I became occupied in liquidating members of the opposite sex. This I did as a strictly business enterprise. And uh, right <laughs> from that moment, you know you're in for a dude's rock classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Chaplin is a, a sinister playboy. Um, you know, not, not he's a tramp, but not the tramp. You know, he's a he's a pure, pure doggish behavior in uh, this movie. But what's great about is you know about Chaplin is kind of like the complexity of this character, right? It's Chaplin. He's America's sweetheart, and uh, you know he's still charming. He's still very charming, and he has a um, you know a calming presence to a lot, but. And to kind of pair it up with the kind of like his actions and kind of like the the bungled mess of, you know, pre and post war like morality, you know, creates like really interesting alchemy that this, you know, movie stands upon and it's it's very unique. 
Oh, yeah. Its tone is like really strange because when you think about the bigger implications of it and then also just playing with this little story, uh, it really makes you take a step back. Uh, like <laughs> the, the first murder that we kind of see witness to uh, after realizing what the film is, is uh, you see the black smoke coming out of the incinerator uh, of the, the house of uh, the woman that he marries, the first family that is the victim of Verdu, uh, who we meet early on in the film. They're outside and they see the black smoke coming from the incinerator. And as in uh, Neil Bahadur's review on Letterboxd, he points out that, you know, that is the mark of this being the first post-Holocaust film. Uh, and you think about something like Alain Rene's uh, Night and Fog and the way that the camera creeps through the atmosphere of that film. And then the camera movement in this is so strange and um, creepy in a way uh, that I hadn't seen from him before, as well as just being effective on that very direct level that he always is managing to be. Yeah, and I think, yeah, he's Chaplin's very direct, and I think that's one of the great charms of him. You know, it's, you know, for this being a complex movie, it's, it's you know, everything is presented kind of in like a simple way, like kind of like you have the smoke coming out of, you know, the incinerator. Then you have, you know, Chaplin picking these roses. And it's kind of an obvious contrast that, you know, that guides the rest of the movie. So we see Chaplin with some roses uh, just uh, just a few scenes later as he's showing this house uh, to a prospective uh, woman and her real estate, you know, manager or whatever. And uh, he's coming on to this woman. You see that he's back to work already. One wife is dead. Time to get another one and get some of her money. And we get one of the most uncomfortable and unpleasant and also pleasant in the terms of just like what great cinema does to you. Uh, scenes where uh, the man helping the old woman leaves the room to talk on the phone and then Verdu. Uh, tries to seduce her. He uh, sniffs some flowers while, while giving her a deathly stare of longing uh, and then tries to kiss her for like three minutes in just the creepiest scene in Chaplin's filmography that I've seen. Uh, and no, I, I pointed this out earlier uh, online, like no one else either behind or in front of the camera could really pull that off uh you know like Chaplin throughout this is just the most depraved character he's ever played and uh just he plays it up so heavy just how much of an obnoxious asshole he is but he just have has that magnetic presence and he knows from behind the camera exactly how to shoot himself to make this film flow the way that it does no yeah Chaplin's definitely you know self-assured at this point and like yeah the tone that that scene creates is like one of my favorite scenes in the movie and the i mean some of his fuckboy tactics i'd like to know is like knowing astrology right that's like you're like hey that's modern that's fun <laughs> oh my god a tale as old as time <laughs> speaking in like very like hollow poetics i venture to say that you were never as attractive as you are now you're very kind on the contrary i'm very frank no doubt you were extremely beautiful as a young girl but your youth could never compete with your age now. Your, your ripeness. Your luxuriousness. Besides, you have more character now, more, more, more experience, more, uh, more everything. And stuff like that, you know. Pure snake charming bullshit. And uh, 
what's great about like this type of character is like usually um, I feel like movies would make this guy you know real slick, real pickup artist. Whereas like yeah, the the sense of desperation never leaves uh, you know Chaplin's eyes in this scene and you know throughout the movie. Yeah, and uh, th- the cap it off with him falling out the window. I mean, the gags. We love the gags. <laughs> Oh, we love the gags. I mean, like Chaplin is clearly slowed down. Uh, if you compare this to some of the chase scenes from his shorts from, you know, the 1915-1916 era, uh, the few scenes where he's called upon to do some real physical uh, heavy lifting, you see how much he's deteriorated, but he's still obviously the god of physical acting like him falling out the window there him you know pursuing a kiss in that scene as well uh later on the next time we see him jump out a window and run out (laughs) of that woman's house uh toward the end of the film just a great send up to you know his classic stylings uh and just in the most heartbreaking fashion i mean we'll get to the end when we get to it but uh I don't know, something about the weight that his age carries, uh, you know, despite the phoniness uh, in the way that his character talks about that woman's age. It really does truthfully apply to his physical performance in this film. That's true. He was, you know, maybe he was making these movies about older ladies when he was just trying to be appreciated as an old man. (laughs) (laughs) And he is just trying to be appreciated as an old man. I mean, look, he has a wife. He has a But he's just out here trying to win the hearts of every woman that he can so he can eventually win her wallet. And, you know, the hustle never stops. Oh, no. The the breaking down of the hustle with the recurring uh, train wheels on the train tracks, just mm-hmm. fucking motoring, that, like, it just gets you in such that mindset of just constantly uh, working and, like, how, like, he's like stressing and moving from place to place to achieve all this while also sort of showing just like the cat like the cold tools of capitalist machinery is just such a phenomenal way to like sort of break down from like most of the scenes to scene Mm -hmm. oh my god yeah i mean like the 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 close-ups of the wheels on the train and like the intensity of that and the exacting nature of the way he makes his plans uh you know when he has to figure out what time the banks close locally in a certain time zone and when he can catch the train to get there and how long it would take to seduce the woman and convince her to give him money. You know, uh, the the cold and exacting nature of that is very much like the easiest thing to relate to the overall allegory of this and the descent into World War II and fascism. Uh, and it's just like beautiful the way he's able to represent all of that evil in the world while still not quite being the tramp, but essentially being uh, the essentials of the tramp and mm-hmm. just so not here lovable, but so watchable uh, that nothing is more exciting to me than him figuring out his timetable for <laughs> catching a train, seducing a woman and taking her to the bank. Yeah. It's, you know, it's almost scientific as he uh, brings up later in the movie, you know, trying to make his own poison and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I, oh, yeah. I love, I love how, uh, before he, you know, he's like, Oh, the bank's close at four. And he keeps telling himself this right before the woman, you know, answers his door and lets him in the house. That's the last thing he thinks before interacting with this woman. And, you know, I think, mm-hmm. I think the dichotomy of the, you know, him being, you know, uh, a playboy murderer and, you know, him having a family, right. It's, it's really good because it's like he, you know, his family admits that 
he doesn't have to do this. His wife is like, I would be just as happy, if not happier, you know, if you, you know, we were poor and you, you spent more time with us. But, uh, you know, Chaplin is, he's a, he's a part of the machine. He's addicted to the hustle. Oh yeah. He knows more than anyone that the hustle continues. Also kind of like how the family is like his false moral base, right? It's kind of like we do these kind of immoral things and we have like something to blame it on or we have a reason and like the family is ultimately just a reason for him to do what he does. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like that's like how little we actually see of him with his family is a testament to how little they actually mean to Verdu. Like it's just the guise of like, Oh, that that's why I'm doing this. They need the money. But like you see how much it's just like his own obsession. No, very narcissistic. And like, um, and like, you know, he has these weird quirks, right? It's like, you know, he's like a vegetarian and like, and, uh, he's, uh, interested in gardening and stuff like that. It's, you know, he, it's, uh, it's kind of like calling to like, kind of like, you know, how like Hitler was like kind of, uh, interested in animals, right. And was an artist too. It's like, kind of like, we've seen like these evil people be unmasked and they have like, you know, weird quirks just like us. And it kind of adds a weird dimension to all of it. Yeah. And Hitler also was a big fan of Chaplin. Uh, and unfortunately, the great dictator, not very effective uh, yeah. for Hitler. <laughs> but uh, this film, on the other hand, kind of wish uh, old Adolf got a chance to lay his eyes on it. This might have uh, changed his mind. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would go back in time and show uh, Hitler Monsieur Verdure before killing him. <laughs> but what I really love about this film is as it, you know, cascades towards its, you know, time jumping third act. Uh, we see the farcical nature of it get teased out, you know, like it slowly moves from a procedural, uh, kind of crime story with some comedy into just a full on farce. But meanwhile, the, the implications of that farce become more and more depressing and bleak as the film goes on. You know, uh, when we see the montage that shows the markets uh, collapsing in Europe in crisis and, you know, leading to world war two, uh, we realize that for our story, not for the implications of it globally, uh, but for how these global events affect our character, Verdu has no choice, but to realize that everything he had, worked his whole life for was entirely fake you know uh in that moment where he calls his banker or his uh stock guy or whatever and asks to sell everything he had and he's like oh you were wiped out an hour ago you know uh money and the markets and all of that is fake uh and it's a really hard thing to reckon with (laughs) yeah yeah i mean chaplin's calling for the destruction of uh the federal reserve in this movie no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> Chaplin, full tanky. I mean, what do you think the gold rush is about? Yeah, oh, exactly. I mean, that's what many people thought because he had, you know, sympathies, obviously. Uh, and then you look at films like The Gold Rush, Modern Times, and this, and it's like, yeah, if anyone uh, is full tanky mode, you know, him and I'll I'll talk about it in the middle. But uh, King Vidor definitely had some of the some streaks of that in him as well. Yeah. Uh, back to Monsieur Verdu. What I said about the farce uh, increasing as we go, he finally wins over the woman who he had been trying uh, to seduce 
since that early f- scene that we described. Mm-hmm. You know, he's sending her flowers every week, twice a week, while he's going out and trying to seduce these other women and get money in other ways. And he finally wins her over. So they eventually go to get married. And at the ceremony, who appears but one of his girlfriends, uh, who Verdu was using the alias of a ship captain uh, to present himself to. And he's hiding from her for the first, you know, f- t- five, ten minutes of this sequence. And it's great. And he's bent over pretending to have a stomach ache. And then finally, uh, we get the scene I alluded to earlier where he makes his escape through the house, uh, just dodging the man who was just helping him and his potential wife and runs out on all of that uh, and him jumping a fence And it's him leaving behind all of that farce of a life that he was living uh, up to that point. His way of acquiring a means to an end, killing women, you know, (laughs) Uh, this absurd, amoral life he was living where his brain was destroyed by losing his banking job. Marty! Marty! Beloved, see you later. Marty! What's here, Marty? Uh, it all comes into focus, and then we get that really heartbreaking kind of epilogue. Yeah, I think I think kind of like that epilogue, you know, how we see him kind of post this lifestyle is what really makes this movie special for me, because we already kind of have like, uh, you know, Verdu being like an opinionated kind of like romantic murderer. Like, you know, you know these complexities, you know, it's shown in like that scene where he doesn't kill that girl that he finds on that street, that convict. And, uh, you know, it's kind of inspired by, like, the way she talks. There was kind of, like, a, a flair to his bitterness, Monsieur Verdu. You know, he was, he was killing yeah. women with style. He took, you know, he kind of like, <laughs> liked it. He was kind of into it, you know, kind of probably like this persona he had. And now he's just completely dejected. He's, uh, you know, as that same woman sa- uh, says as she meets him later, him, him poor, her rich, you've lost your zest for uh, bitterness. And, uh, yeah, it's like, that's just him being burnt out as fuck is just, it's too real. Chaplin's keeping it too real in this movie. Oh my God. Yeah. And her fate being that like, she becomes rich because she married a, like she's a war profiteer, you know, that's the only reason she's rich. It's such a bitter outcome. I feel like part of what makes Chaplin's like bitterness initially so palatable is because you can see when it's like sort of sussed out what led him down that path, just sort of the ways that capitalism alienates people and tears them down slowly. So like you're familiar with the process. I mean, obviously, Verdu goes to quite the extreme uh, because of it. Um, yeah, but uh, I don't know. You can relate to that feeling at least. I love that at his hearing at the end when he's asked to explain himself. Uh, he said that after he had lost his job, he was forced to go into business for himself. Uh, and so that's just a great representation of what like the American entrepreneurial mindset is. Oh, yeah. This is CEO mindset, you know, canon. Like, this is Gary Vaynerchuk needs to watch this. You know, all my YouTube CEOs, (laughs) they need to watch this because uh, um, Chaplin's not uh, endorsing the lifestyle. He's he's saying, fuck the rat race. Oh, yeah. Uh, And, of course, he leaves us with a couple of thoughts. One that, you know, uh, one murder makes a man a villain and that a million makes one a hero, his classic anti-war sentiment. And that also... uh, Upon leaving this spark of earthly existence, 
I have this to say. I shall see you all very soon. Very soon. I've never seen a perfect note to end a film on. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's like I'll fucking greet you in you know in hell, bitch. <laughs> it's like the ending of Crank Two, where it's like he's on fire and it's two middle fingers straight to the camera. That's uh, that's that's that Verdu feeling. <laughs> um. So yeah, I am so glad that I took the deep dive on Chaplin this week. Um. This, though, is such a strange film, and it's, you know, before watching it, I was kind of split between The Gold Rush and City Lights for which one was my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, The Gold Rush, you know, just being such a formal perfection and such a powerful message as well. And City Lights just being his sentimentalism pushed over the edges quite literally represented by the music hanging over the uh the film after the end goes away and the screen stays black for 20 seconds yeah this film i feels this film feels like the synthesis of that where you have the anti-capitalist perspective of someone who truly went rags to riches and sees uh the bitter side of the riches you have the sentimentality of the you know a not it's not the story like city lights uh it's a much more global tragedy uh and also just peak filmmaking form so i put it kind of as the the synthesis of those two and my favorite chaplain that i've seen and an easy five bullets for me yeah i'm gonna go four and a half bullets just because much like uh, that Chaplin character at the end, I've kind of lost my uh, zest for life and I, I can't give movies five stars anymore. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this is great. You know, I think, I think you made the, I think you did a really good move watching all of Chaplin's features before, the, before watching this. Cause I think a, a familiarity with Chaplin's history is, you know, needed a little bit to appreciate this. And uh, yeah, I mean, one of the more unique tones I've seen in a movie and I, I like the poster a lot too. I like the quote, "Chaplin changes." Can you? I, uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that shit's tight. So I'm asking you, the viewer, can you change? Um, <laughs> what about you, JT? Um, I'm gonna give this one five bullets. Uh, yeah, I like what we're witness. What we witnessed here was very important. The creation of the pickup artist and where all of the pickup <laughs> artist culture emerged from. Um. But uh, more importantly, just like I, I, I had, I've seen Eddie doing the Chaplin deep dive this week, and it was very inspiring. Though I did not follow that path, but I just like this just really tapped in for me with like reminding me just how fucking good like some of the masters are that you could, you can forget. Um, and I definitely want to check out more late Chaplin. Like I think Limelight might be, it sounds like a pretty appealing next direction, uh, for me, but it's just like a spectacular, um, achievement that he can make something like so bitter, um, but yet so funny and just like absolutely beautifully structured. Um, this is, I Mm -hmm. don't know, a true blue masterpiece. I... I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What more can you say? Two ounces of chloroform, please. One more.
And we're back on extended clip. Um, before we get to Tom Green's uh, magnum opus, you guys see anything else this week that you want to talk about? Yeah, you know what? Um, you know, I, I watched this movie called Happiness, right? And uh, Ooh. it's a total, it's a, it's a total jip. It's not, it's not a happy movie. <laughs> People are sad in the movie. What the fuck? <laughs> What were you going to say, Eddie? Well, now I'm just concerned about when Gypsy Twitter gets a hold of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, Happiness, directed by Todd Solins, a director I don't quite have an, a, a, a formidable opinion on yet, like, you know, him throughout his career and whatnot, but I think Happiness is a really great movie. Uh, listeners might remember me talking about finding the most 100 most disturbing movies of all time <laughs> and uh, watching a good chunk of those movies to get into movies. Happiness was on the list. Um, probably not deservedly so. Ha- happiness is pretty funny. It's a, uh, you know, dark humor. And I, I liked this when I was a young boy, 14. But, you know, I thought maybe Maybe my tastes have matured. You know, maybe I'm I'm a little bit more refined now. I'm a little more clean cut, and um, you know, maybe I won't I won't take you know the obvious stylings of Solins. It's like oh, dark humor when it's called happiness or whatever. But I, I found it really funny. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, that's the only actor I, I genuinely miss when they died. Um, you know, a guy who jerks off to people. You know, he'll Romeo di- dial people, <laughs> jerk off, come on the wall put a postcard on there. It's stuff, it's stuff, you know, I like stuff. I like to see going on. And, um, I don't know. There's a couple moments where it's like, maybe like Solon's is like reaching here with the humor. Like it's not being, it's not doing its job so much, but honestly, I, I had a good time, you know, just being, being dark, twisted, being jokerified. And I, I want to, I want to shout out hall pass, which I also watched this week, Hall Pass, directed by the Farrelly brothers of uh, Green Book fame. And um, <laughs> Hall Pass is not great. Kind of uh, more unpleasant than Verdue and Freddy Got Fingered, to be honest. But um, it does feature Monkberry Moon Delight, which is oh, oh that's hell yeah. one of the best songs of all time. Which is really funny that I think it's in that movie. And it also features uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice for like three seconds for a pretty cheap gag. Pretty shit movie, but... Yeah, actually, no, there's not really that. I guess uh, J.B. Smooth is in it. That's kind of cool. Um, but I usually like the Farrelly's. That wasn't great. But I, I think you I feel like you could have guessed that. I feel like that period of Farrelly is just never going to get reclaimed, you know? Yeah. Like the, the first third of their filmography as it stands now, or even first half, is always going to be loved by, like, you know, people who like comedy movies mm-hmm. as well as weirdo auteurists. Uh, and then I think once they properly start their late period, uh, that'll be indulgent as well, and people will love that. But Fever Pitch, Hall Pass, I don't know. I don't know if the the stands are ever going to come out for those ones. No, yeah, and the late the late style for Fairly, right? It might be an inverse, you know, where he's making Oscar bait movies. You know what I mean? Which would be kind of interesting. Yeah, it could yeah. be in it now. It, it could be an interesting inverse, right? You see people try to, be, you know. I don't know, maybe like... I was going to say, it seemed like it. they almost teased at a late period uh, in a classical sense with stuff like uh, Dumb and Dumber, 
two three stooges movies right yeah 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 i guess so but then it didn't happen it didn't it didn't happen (laughs) it didn't happen so now we have green book what about you jt um i watched some flicks uh by a very strange uh tiny nebbish man no i'm not talking about woody allen i'm talking about (laughs) kave zahadi uh the documentarian um, I started with I Am a Sex Addict, um, 2005, and I'm still like very confused with how I feel about his style and just like him as a filmmaker in general. It's like I've consumed this and then uh, two seasons of his like uh, YouTube, like Brick TV television show, the show about the show. Um, but I Am a Sex Addict is a documentary uh, where Zahadi um, recreates like moments in his life um, where he was like seeing prostitutes and like cheating on his girlfriends. Just being like a real dick um, piece of shit. Um, and but like doing it through this guise of like weird honesty like he's a very strange man and so it's like interesting to see him sort of like self-destruct his relationship uh, relationships and like detail that very nakedly and honestly but a lot of the time he'll try and get um the people that were in the original events to help him recreate the events and i feel like it it just adds a very strange layer to it. And especially with um, the show about the show, which is like pretty much the height of uh, meta narrative, like Brooklyn navel gazing. But also I feel like I really did enjoy it. It's like a show where each episode is the making of the last episode So the pilot is about him pitching the series and just like sometimes he'll have like people like play themselves in it. It's just like very weird. And there's like the longer the show goes on, the more it like eats into his marriage with uh, his wife, Mandy. And it's just like you see him be like kind of like a shitty dad and like (laughs) admit it at points and just like actively destroy his like marriage to like do this weird like documentary um and it's just i it's i can't i couldn't like not be engaged with it like at a certain point like one night i was up to like 2 a.m and i had watched like eight episodes in a row and i was just i really fucking hated him and i was like maybe i don't actually like any of his work but it's i gave it some time and i feel like i probably do um, I definitely want to check out more stuff though. It was weird. Damn, that sounds like hyper vlogging. Like, yeah, it kind of is. Too. Damn. I'm looking at it on Letterboxd right now, and like I had seen the title pop up before, but yeah, Dustin Guy Defa is an actor in it, and he <laughs> uh, directed that movie Person to Person, which was not so good uh, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> but he's an he seems like an interesting figure. Zia Anger was in one of it was in the show about the show. Also, uh, yeah, Kevin Corrigan, one of our greatest character actors, uh, seems to make an appearance. So I might have to check it out just for that. I'm also, yeah, there's a really good half-star review of it, not to just take it down right away. 
but that seems to be the vibe looking at letterboxes my friends either think this is great or just the worst thing ever so definitely something i want to check i feel like you'd probably hate it i like i was trying to think in my mind uh, how you would feel about it and it like it just rides the line between me hating it and me really liking it a lot send in your reviews if you want your reviews uh read on uh the extended (laughs) clip program your letterbox could be voiced by me eddie or jt or someone else too um you know so do that that should be that should be the new uh, part of the middle segment is reading a letterbox review of one of the things that we talk about. It is the segment that's sponsored by Letterbox. True, LB, LB, get at us. Uh, I watched quite a few films this week. I watched, as I said, every Chaplin feature leading up to Monsieur Verdoux. I also watched quite a few Joseph von Sternberg movies, which were all, of course, incredible. But I'm going to talk about our daily bread. Uh, the film by King Vidor, made in 1934. This is a film that King Vidor had to mortgage his house to make uh, because he, I think, initially went to MGM, he said, and then was not able to secure funding for this totally fucking socialist movie uh, during the Great Depression about people who live on a co-op farm and, you know, uh, turn to the land uh, when our economic systems have failed us and they trade labor and skills and they start a new community and they overcome obstacles such as uh, a lack of capital to start with and uh, weather and they overcome them through you know teamwork, luck, innovation, uh, and the art of montage. Uh, the last 15 minutes of this film, after it seems like the farm might just completely be in jeopardy because of a long drought, uh, LA heads, you know what that feeling is. They develop an irrigation system when they find some water a few miles away. And uh, the last 15 minutes is just them in a rush digging a ditch and building an irrigation system and then watching the water come through and everyone's celebrating. And uh, in a film without real a real protagonist or a, a quote-unquote traditional narrative arc, that I think just serves uh, to show the power of montage and these combinations of images of work and production and joy of people and gathering of people uh, and just shot, of course, in the most godly way. Uh, King Vidor is able to get some really incredible shots here when he's trying to encapsulate uh, the the masses that are, you know, occupying this cooperative living space as well as the mass of the land that they're living on. Uh, and it's just one of the most breathtaking films and uh, yeah, as I've you know said many times about the montage already, it, it basically feels like you're watching a Soviet uh, propaganda film for the last 15 minutes shot on a farm an hour away from Hollywood. Damn. It's yeah, propaganda, awesome. though? I'm not going to watch it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Can't fuck with this propaganda, dude. It's also fucking like 76 minutes or something like that. So oh. yeah, seek it out. That's, that's, see, that's, that's got me right back in. My baby's coming. My baby is coming. Call the doctor, you fucking asshole. Oh, it's okay. I'm a doctor. No, no, give me a real doctor. Give me a real doctor. I'm a real doctor. Get away from me. So, um, who got fingered, Malcolm? Well, 
That's see, that's what's great about this movie. Did anyone get fingered? <laughs> <laughs> it really leaves you with that question, right? <laughs> Is green fingering us? <laughs> and in the end, the real fingering victim was all of us. Yeah, yeah. This was, you know, this movie was so bad it felt like I was getting fingered. Um, <laughs> Wait, <what>? that's that's <laughs> for that's for people who don't like getting fingered, I guess. But um, uh, um, you know, in, it sounds like I'm being over the top here, right? But I, I'm kind of talking like the critics, like when when this movie came out. And I wanna I wanna read this quote because I think it's it's particularly juicy by uh, Mark Savlov of the Austin Chronicle. Um, this big screen debut is a horrible brain sucking misfire. Green, who looks like a chinless, hollow eyed pederast at the best of times, is simply out of his league here. The film drags, blah blah blah. It makes the Fairley and Wayne's brothers seem like the second coming of Chaplin. Now, um, I checked in what Mark Savlov was up to nowadays. I checked his Twitter. Um, 500 followers. Not, you know, it's fine. And he's, like, uh, retweeting, like, Ricky Gervais memes about religion. Um, so we got an ardent atheist here. Yeah. Um, I mean, we already, like, surpassed him. Yeah, yeah, collectively. We all count as one. <laughs> Every time you re- retweet someone else's tweet, that's also I'm getting retweeted. You know, that's how I see it. But um, nowadays, the tone has changed on this. There's been plenty of articles being like, Freddie Got Fingered is a masterpiece. That, that, you know, people like to say, oh, this is like a Dadaist masterpiece. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what Dadaist exactly means. You know, I don't, I don't, those are expensive words. But, um, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, this this is a. I think this is a pretty unique movie, kind of a, a one of one, if you will. What did what did you guys think about it? Oh, I I absolutely adored this. Uh, I'm something of a Tom Green neophyte. I mean, like I've seen clips, I've seen a few episodes of the Tom Green show, uh, but I I never took a deep dive or anything like that. It was mainly just uh, comedians that I enjoy have often cited him, uh, but. To get back to the reputation of this film, uh, I, I did want to bring one piece of criticism to the table. Please do. Um, mm-hmm. Our favorite film critic logged this review on April 20th of 2001. But unfortunately, I do not believe that Roger Ebert was smoking <laughs> on uh, that good good or even that mid. That pre-9-11 mm-hmm. pack, dude. You know that shit was fun. <laughs> he says... He lives in a basement room still stocked with his high school stuff, draws cartoons, and dreams of becoming an animator. Gord would exhaust a psychiatrist's list of diagnoses. He is unsocialized, hostile, manic, and apparently retarded. Retarded? How else to explain a sequence in which a Hollywood animator tells him to get inside his animals, and he skins a stag and prances around dressed in the coat, covered in blood? His romantic interest is Betty, who is disabled and dreams of rocket-powered wheelchairs and oral sex. A different kind of sexual behavior enters the life of his brother, Freddy, who gets the movie named after him just because, I suppose, Tom Green thought the title was funny. His character also thinks it is funny to falsely accuse his father of molesting Freddy. <laughs> Damn, Tom Green trolled. He trolled everyone. Yeah. He made, he made, he, 
he, yeah, he, he, won. he won. Even if this is the zero star review that more people read than any other review of this film combined. Fre- uh, to- I was going to say Freddie won. Uh, Tom Green won. <laughs> Freddie didn't win. He got fainted. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, Malcolm, what is this film? This film is about, uh, you know, a boy. We have Tom Green, kind of a, a fail son, if you will. Um, living at home, animation aspirations, goes to L.A. to chase his dreams, only to be sent back because uh, the, the animation studio doesn't exactly, you know, his ideas are underdeveloped. They're too chaotic. They don't really make much sense, the movie says. Um, so he comes back home, much to his father's, you know, dismay, and just basically um, fucks around, I guess, you know, gets a girlfriend, Keep you know gets discouraged from chasing his dreams. Um, you know it's it's basically just a coming of age story. It's your classic Bill Dung Romans type shit. JT, how did you take to this one? Yeah, this like I, I just couldn't comprehend. Like I don't know this. I feel like usually I have an easier time talking about the B movies, but this is just so perplexing. And funny and just like an enjoyable time, but I love the manic energy just bursting at the seam everywhere. That that this movie is just pure anarchy. And just the the sheer amount of screaming and loud noises. Like I was watching it in my living room and like my, my roommates are like working from home. And I was like very concerned with the fluctuation in volumes because this just... It's it's at a ten the entire time, and I love that just like aggressive pitch. Oh yeah, this is definitely a riding the volume knob classic. <laughs> you know, and that kind of reflects on like Tom Green's two modes here, right? You've got manic Green, where he's you know liable to do anything. He'll split open a a deer and wear it, you know, like <laughs> as if he was a deer. Uh, you know, he'll. Uh, rip a bait. Which, by the way, I don't think that says anything about him being mentally ill. It's a good bit. Like, yeah. uh, Ebert is wrong. Yeah, that was he was just, he was doing a little stretch there. That was kind of I think he just wanted... Ebert was being ableist. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, and talk about a non ableist movie, right? But um, this movie is representation for a certain uh, disability that some of us may have. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I, I guess I was talking about the two modes. Yeah, Green, who's manic, crazy, but then also just kind of he'll do complete deadpan too, where like um, characters will like talk to him, especially in some of the earlier scenes with the girlfriend, and he's almost like a brick wall sometimes or whatever. Like he's just a one. One of the stranger scenes in like this movie that's like you know just strange scenes strung together, but kind of like strange by comparison is when. Uh, He's about to receive his first blowjob from his girlfriend, and uh, he takes off his shirt only to reveal the umbilical cord taped to his stomach, and it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, I just, I wanted it to be there. Or what, just, you know, com- completely subdued green, <laughs> completely subdued green is just as potent and powerful as, you know, Tom Green ripping a baby out of a woman's vagina and swinging it around. Yeah. <laughs> No, when he says that and he's he reveals that he just thought it would be funny <laughs> to tape it there, it's like that moment of having to reckon with a bit that went too far, you know, uh, it's a pretty profound moment for this movie that is so disgusting on every level uh, that it's able to just like 
you know, call attention to that, but not go too deep. Just bring it up long enough to make you realize that there is a real person in the character of Gord Mm -hmm. or in the Tom Green persona or whatever. Yeah. A real person who has to think about the bits that he's doing (laughs) and like how disgusting and just Mm -hmm. off-putting and uh, unsocial they are. Yeah. I think unsocial is a great term antisocial i guess <laughs> that's a better word but i like the sentiment uh yeah because like there's like the the way this like movie operates is like i think you know it's looking for like the people walking away from the theater it's taking pride in that but it's not in like a i don't know there could that could be done in an annoying way like i don't know people are rubbed the wrong way by like lars von trier's transgressive nature or whatever yeah. Well, this movie, one of the only studio movies that could legitimately call itself transgressive, I would say. Oh my god, yeah. Takes pride in its transgression, but is like, is, you know, more than willing to be stupid. It'll be very fucking stupid. And like, that's kind of how you get, you get the, that's kind of like a rapport I feel like Green is building with the audience, right? Like he could, he can uh, hold on shots of open wounds and people getting their guts split open and shit like that. But he'll also just be, you know, I'm the backwards man or like, I'm just, you know, just silly fleeting bits like, like scuba (laughs) diving for soap in the tub. These are like G rated bits. Um, You know, there's some, there's some slurs maybe thrown out during these bits that make them not G rated, but it's like, you know, kind of like it's traversing both planes here. Yeah. And speaking of the things that are said that are, that make this film not G-rated. Um, Rip Torn gives <laughs> some of his best career line deliveries in this film. I mean, he's obviously given gold to deliver. So uh, it's just, I don't know, the dynamic between Torn and Green here is just phenomenal. Gord! What? Noise! Would you two faggots stop making so fucking much noise? We're sleeping! Oh yeah, this is torn like torn in God mode here. Just as much, you know, a reason why this movie is good as Green, I would say. I mean, there's and some of the stuff he's asked to do, like it is gold, right? But like, it's great that he has such a like a deep understanding. I feel like of what this movie kind of is, and is just as willing to go along with that as Green, which is probably more important for anything, you know, for making this movie work. Yeah. One scene that comes to mind um, where Torn's just elevating the fuck out of the scene where. Uh, Tom Green and his friend, um, his very unnotable friend, are building a, a skateboard half pipe in front of the in front of their house. And Rip Torn is like, you know, shut up or whatever. And like the neighbors are starting to hear. And then like he just starts screaming, and it's hilarious. <laughs> and it's like to a much lesser actor, someone you know, with a less physical presence. This could just be dog shit. This could be like a fucking TikTok video or some shit like that. But it's. It's uh, I mean, these are these are real professionals here. Green and Torn uh, have a rapport in this movie that uh, is just real special. I mean, Torn has some real like countercultural cred, like early on in That's his true. career, doing like some weird shit. So I think he definitely gets it. And I mean, to speak to his performance, like uh, just the sheer comedy of it, like one scene that jumps out in my mind, like significantly later on. Um, is where he's just shaking his ass at Green to, like, <laughs> taunting him to fuck him. <laughs> it, it's just, like, that... Oh, that works so much for me. Come on, guard! That's over here! Fuck me! Just stick it right in there! Put your ass away! I don't... 
here. Sketches here. Oh. Oh, holy shit, Dad, what are you doing? Hey. What are you coming over here? Fuck you, Daddy. Fuck you, Daddy. Fuck you, Daddy. Fuck you, Daddy. Hey, hey. As a director, uh, Tom Green is also up to the call of duty, if you will. Um, he He's a very competent director, and there's a lot of style, uh, like, stylistic choices that almost feel arbitrary and then you have to think about the motivations of the comedy and how unmotivated and just like insane uh a lot of the bits are in this and you realize that the very intense dolly zoom on him uh drawing is not really of any significance but it's like a fun funny thing kind of and it just dissembles uh, or disassembles like the order and the structure of this film as just the comedy, you know, mm-hmm. like the formal approach to this film doesn't make sense, but that doesn't mean that it feels like a ramshackled, uh, poorly made film. Yeah. Uh, the camera angles feel as arbitrary as which animals he's debasing, you know? <laughs> no, it, interesting you say that. Cause I was reading uh, a Tom green interview about this movie and believe it or not, he didn't get complete director's cut. Um, and he says like, there's kind of certain things about the movie that he, he still thinks it's really good, but he, there's some, he, there's some things he would have changed. Essentially he said he would have made it more transgressive, more darker, like shots would have held for longer. Some <laughs> scenes would have gone on longer, which is like, that's, that's gotta be a gnarly fucking movie. Cause this one already, oh my this God, one yeah. already has uh puts a lot on your plate, but yeah, I think you're talking about like a random dolly shot here and there, or like, I think of the scene where he's walking into the pastrami shop to get a job and it's just in like stylistic slow-mo while the rain is playing and it's yeah. got some Moby blasting and it's, and it's like, this is really like <laughs> impressive and kind of out of nowhere, but it kind of disproves like, you know, the snooty critics kind of being like, this is, this is below the bottom of the barrel. It's like, I, I saw people call it lazy where it's just, there's like, I think that's a complete misassessment from this movie. Even if you don't like it, there's so much craft and deliverance deliverance, you know, seeped into this movie that it's like, it's a very uh, staunch piece of art. It's yeah. It's like antisocial yeah. transgressive. And it, uh, it really stands out for like, I mean, just everything that was being released at the time. This is kind of like the, you know, people talk about post nine 11 torture porn. This is like the scream from the heavens before that or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I love how, all of the rules of society and reality will collapse for the sake of one scene. And it's like a blackout sketch. And then the next scene, it's back to normal, you know, like the restaurant scene, uh, his first date where he's pretending to be a businessman and he takes out his kitchen phone, uh, pretending it's a cell and is like screaming and firing this imaginary man. And then his dad sees him and they get in a fight in the restaurant. Like, goes crazy and the cops show up and shoot they fire in the air (laughs) it's just one of the most absurd scenes and it really is for like for someone who is making a film and i don't mean immediate in the way that i meant for chaplin but for someone whose humor has so much immediacy uh in the sight gags and Mm -hmm. the gross outs and the gross uh dialogue even uh he also has the ability to create a slow burning farce like that that's like one of the longer scenes in the film Mm -hmm. and in my opinion probably the finest part of the film i don't fucking care what he told you okay 
I'm talking about 40 million fucking Deutschmark here, Bob. 40 million fucking Deutschmark. I told you to wire the money to Geneva last week. I say Geneva. You hear Helsinki? Huh? 40 million fucking Deutschmark, Bob. No way. Yeah, the way that scene builds up and how it kind of weaves is really impressive now that you call attention to it, where you have, you know, Tom Green on the date with his girlfriend and then his parents out on a date unknowingly, knowing that he's there, thinking that he's at his new job that he lied about. And then you have um, the neighbor character, the neighbor and his son, <laughs> the son who is a, a punching bag throughout the movie, who just gets his <laughs> face scraped and like bruises, um, gets things thrown at him. And the movie will take pleasure in watching him scream, like they'll hold the camera like a little bit longer. Because yeah. like, like, it's kind of a common gag where like, I don't know, like some Spongebob type shit or whatever. It's like you hear a bunch of noise, but someone's like, oh, my leg. And where it's like, yeah, here we got, you know, we go directly to that character and we see him writhe, you know, in pain. And it's like a seven-year-old kid. It's uh, it's very funny stuff. But like how they even intertwine into the scene and how that kid gets, you know, somehow injured again. And, you know, kind of the tensions of Rip Torm and Tom Green you know, finally go, coming to a head. I think that one of my favorite jokes in the movie is when Rip Torn confronts, you know, uh, Tom Green on his, you know, his fake date while he's faking being a businessman. And uh, I keep wanting to call Tom Green Freddy, but uh, Tom Tom Green is like, oh, that's that's not my dad. That's little Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> completely unbuyable. But um, yeah, and the way that yeah. scene ends too with like the cop being like, get the fuck down, like, asshole, or whatever. <laughs> How it, like, seeps kind of, like, the manic energy and, like, kind of, like, the anarchic spirit out of the scene is very uh, very subtle but very masterful, I would say. This is a fancy restaurant is a line among many in this film that did actually remind me of the sensibility of Chris Elliott in the way that he delivers jokes sometimes, but this is just so much grosser than Chris Elliott. It's so much more. It's like the the cabin boy for the extreme sports era, you know? <laughs> One of my favorite things that despite the anarchy in the scene to scene is the overall like leisurely pace of the film. I, the titular fingering does not even happen until like maybe like 50 minutes in uh, to the movie. And I just like, I mean, I the movie itself really despises work. And I just think that like <laughs> sort of slow pace with there being any narrative momentum really works for that. Oh, and this is speaking of despising work. I mean, this is kind of also an anti-capitalist movie. Yeah, if absolutely. You give it, if you want to lend it that reading, you know. Uh, it it kind of has the the beach bum ending if you think about it of him, you know, fucking off for ninety minutes and then being rewarded with a million dollars and blowing it, you know. Uh, and I think I like it more in this. I mean, I I do like that aspect of the beach bum, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but I think for this one, it's a more a not to just keep saying direct, but yeah, he just like spent he the way he breaks down his finances. Uh, of how much he spent on the helicopter and then how much he's just going to give the rest over uh, to mount this one last stunt to bring him and his dad to Pakistan. <laughs> yeah, based on just like an offhand comment his dad made at the dinner table, which I think is great. And yeah, I think I think the difference between uh, the beach bomb and Freddy Got Fingered with, you know, the regard you're talking to, a uh, big fan of both, but like there's no honor 
in Tom Green doing this. Like, the, like kind of the end note of the Beach Bum is like, it's kind of like a sweet, like, you know, book closer. I don't know exactly the term, but it's like a, a nice period, I guess, where it's like, and, you know, he doesn't give a fuck about the money. Where it's like this, it's like, he doesn't give a fuck about the money, but it's like, then he, he uh, gets his house to Pakistan and, like, blasts his dad with elephant cum. So, <laughs> and what are, what are we supposed to get from this? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That Tom Green jerks off multiple animals in a movie, <laughs> and you can do that too if you work hard enough. True. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you're looking at Rip Torn as like the, uh, you know, everything wrong with like the the conservative uh, American male ideology, uh, the fact that like. Uh, what he's doing to get back at him for all of these years, even if it is based on a silly uh, offhanded remark, is to put him in the Middle East uh, for a film in 2001 is fucking a chef's kiss if I've ever seen one. Uh, Tom Green, just salute for that one. That is like Ishtar 2 right there. That was that was his Verdue speech right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any any final thoughts on this one before we uh, shoot it down? Because it's hard for this not to just devolve into listing yeah. off funny bits. But trust me, watch this movie. There's a lot of funny bits here. I got here's a little something I've been working on. It's not completely developed, but it's like Charlie bit my finger. Freddie got fingered. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> uh, what is the synthesis of the two? Is it Charlie got fingered? <laughs> no well remember that video it's like one of the first viral videos i yeah. remember it's like charlie bit my finger and it's like well charlie bit my finger before he got <laughs> i think it's it's more of like a i think that's like a literary joke right like that's like a that's like something you laugh at in a, in, in a book or something like that not really something to say aloud yeah on your prairie home companion reading humor <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's more about a, a critique of cultural <laughs> phenomena. You know, it's, uh, you know, America was obsessed with Charlie bit my finger when they should have been obsessing over Freddie Gottfinger. Exactly. And I was like, well, Charlie, Charlie Chaplin, right? How do I tie that in? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, exactly and you know how we tie it in is tom green posting uh charlie chaplin on instagram like two days ago which was just a complete alignment of the stars that we never could have imagined yeah he, contrary to what you were thinking he was not in on the bit no yeah <laughs> and i think it's a, a perfect like almost like capstone to the freddie got finger controversy right because it's like um you know critics are saying like you're making the Waynes look like, you know, Chaplin, where, you know, in reality, us smart guys know that Freddie Got Fingered is, you know, a physical masterwork, you know, very dissimilar to Chaplin in a lot of ways, but maybe captures um, his spirit in a way, I don't know, mo- most other comedies, maybe the artist is a little bit more um, yeah. Chaplin-like, <laughs> um, but, uh, and then, you know. Well, it has some formal qualities, such as the silence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like, um and to cap it off here, you cap it off years later, Tom Green is just chilling at his house, appreciating Chaplin like he always has, you know, knowing the better. And he's, he's remembering the classics. How could you ask for anything more from him? Um, also, what you said, though, about uh, the weigh-ins, you know, people saying that it makes the weigh-ins seem like Chaplin. 
you take the Wayans output in 2001 and I'm, I think I'm more sympathetic to the Wayans than most people would right now. At least most people, the type of people that listen to our podcast, Yeah, uh, not to, not to make a judgment call on ethnic groups uh, who might listen to our podcast. <laughs> Damn. Uh, SoundCloud has told me that you're all white. So that's all I'm saying. Is there, is there a thing in SoundCloud where they're like, Hey, are you white? Race? <laughs> it's kind of a why do websites ask for our race all the time it's kind of fucked up but to get back to the point uh the wayne's 2001 effort was scary movie too and this is a film that i talked about a few weeks ago on the pod it has some great bits it has you know uh is no actually the dick going through the ears in the first one but it has some good bits in general and uh you think about it like the the last joke uh, before the credits, as Nelly's Ride With Me starts to fade in, the classic end credits song is one of the stars of the film forcing a woman to give him head while he's driving. And then we cut to Nelly and like the <laughs> cool like film strip uh, post credit scene where you see like a cool vintage film strip of each uh, actor, you know, for the oh. credit. And it's like Tom Green was so much further ahead of that you know yeah. like how as a film critic it's just irresponsible like obviously scary movie 2 didn't fucking like light up the 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 rotten tomatoes score not that it existed back then but just as a film going culture even uh, as a culture in general and i think roger Ebert is the main person to blame for this because of his review where he uses insensitive slurs that none of us have ever said <laughs> outside of quoting roger ebert himself we failed this film in a way that i feel more sincerely about than usual when people say that a film was failed by audiences this one truly hurts me how much people failed this film i'm going four and a half bullets i'm going five bullets you know you talking about nelly at the end of scary movie 2 i like the use of eminem at the end of this movie where uh oh my god 100 times better 100 times better and like you know there's even a little eminem talking about tom green's like why does tom green get to hump a moose on tv and you know what eminem you should have appreciated it because he wouldn't be able to for much longer (laughs) you know so uh you know, we have moral scolds like Eminem and Ebert out here uh, silencing Tom Green where, you know, he makes, you know, and maybe, you know, this movie failed maybe because it is so unique. It is gnarly. Like, you know, I don't know if, like, of course, us film heads, right? We've studied art books, right? So we know that Freddy Got Fingered is good. But you show this to, you know, average average Joe, they'd be like, well, that's kind of, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like all this, you know, violence and all this uh the invasion of a woman during pregnancy, stuff like that. It's, you know, it's just, uh, this movie is unabashedly rugged and, you know, would be even more rugged if Tom Green had the chance. Um, you know, I hope someone gives Tom Green another chance to make a movie. Again, I know in the interviews he said that it's like, he's like, this movie made a killing on DVD. This is a profitable movie. So, um, you know, give the Canadian kid a chance. Um, this is a personal favorite for me, one of my favorite films of all time. Five bullets out of five. Um, I'm passing the gun to you, JT. Um, How many bullets do you want to put in the gun? Um, I'm loading in four bullets. I liked it probably a little bit less than the both of you. Um, but I think that's something that will grow with time. I think this is something that I'm going to come back to a lot. Because, like, I don't know. It takes... Sometimes the smartest man in the room is the one who's willing to be the most dumb. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of that came through here with 
uh, what Green is doing, and just delivering, like, these killer bits while, like, making just, like, a significant, broader point that I feel like it's, I don't know, it's pretty hard to miss, um, but I definitely want to check this one out, like, again, and see how it, was, how it sits with me with some time. Yeah, this is a, this is a really amazing movie. Um, also, it completely is an exception to the funny sex scene rule. Amazing. Um, yeah. Amazing. Him beating her shins because she's paralyzed and that being the thing that she likes sexually is gross, absurd, probably kind of mean-spirited. Uh, great scene. Great scene. Uh, yeah. All she wants to do is suck cock. And, you know, Tom Green... He puts that in his movie and he ends the blooper reel with him making out with his hot girlfriend who's an actor, who's a bigger movie star than any of you losers will ever be. <laughs> and it's kind of like, a, it's kind of just like his middle finger to the camera moment, you know, uh, is him making out with Drew Barrymore at the end of that uh, credits sequence. Who'd, so um, Who knew that Hollywood royalty, the Barrymores, it leads all up to Tom, Tom Green. That's, that's, a, that's a great detour on the road. Um, no emails this week, but you can email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at iPod underscore video. I'm on Twitter at, at bitchface palace. I'm at tallboy thin legs. And we are at extended clip 69. And we're all on letterboxd and blah, 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 blah. Next week. You remember a few weeks ago when I said that we're not going to have guests for a little while because of the quarantine thing? Well, fuck that, because like, we're going to be remote for a while. Yeah. Uh, so next week we have a guest again, and it's Rob Franco. You know him from Twitter, and he's our friend, and he's going to come on the show. And we're going to talk about Mikey and Nikki, the Elaine May masterpiece, and Jack and Jill, the Dennis Dugan, Adam Sandler masterpiece. So... We will see you next week. If you have any Elaine May or Adam Sandler comments or questions, feel free to email us uh, them. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. You guys have any any farewell words? Any farewell wishes? Um, you know, stay safe out there, man. Um, this COVID shit's crazy. So uh, make sure to mask up, glove up. Um, even when you're just in your car by yourself, I'd recommend wearing a mask in your house too and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Just make let's let's just let's just be careful with this one. Ready?